Okay, here we are. So welcome to our class from struggle to redemption. The class is, it's about Pesach, but more than it being about Pesach, it's about us and it's about our lives and it's about our personal exiles because yes, there's a collective exile and there's a collective redemption, but the collective exile is based on our personal exiles and the collective redemption is based on our personal redemption. So instead of us feeling like we're waiting for something outside of ourselves, we're actually waiting for something inside of ourselves. And we are so empowered and we have the ability to make that happen. We're not, you know, standing and waiting. We're not victims of something. We are souls with a mission and each of us has our personal exile and the ability to bring our personal redemption, which ultimately brings the collective redemption. So I was thinking lately, obviously in this time, I hope everyone's well. And of course, um, I guess as always, we should dedicate our Torah learning to anyone who's not well and needs a Rufa needs healing, um, and just sending them all the light and love and blessing that they need. And I was just thinking in this time, you know, our initial question during a time of struggle is always like, why doesn't God speak to me? Right? Why doesn't God talk to me? Like, come on, send me a sign, tell me something, write me a letter, you know, why don't we have a bath call? Why can't I have like a heavenly voice speak to me? Okay, I'm hearing my echo, so I guess if someone else is not mute. So this question, why doesn't God speak to me? The answer is really that he does. He does speak to us. He's speaking to us all the time. And how is he speaking to us? He's speaking to us through nature. He's speaking to us through what's happening. He speaks to us through the feelings and thoughts and, and struggles that we have inside of us. He speaks to us through the people we meet. He speaks to us to, through the Torah we encounter that day. He speaks to us through the questions and answers that we come across throughout our week. So he is speaking to us. He speaks to us all the time. The question is, are we listening? And do we know how to decipher what he's saying? And granted, sometimes it feels like he's whispering and you're like, can you speak a little louder? But just the knowledge that he's speaking to us and that we can find him and hear him through the things that are happening is, is already like just such a comforting answer. Like God is speaking to you, don't worry. He's speaking to you today. He spoke to you yesterday. And just look around at what's happening. Just listen to the questions and answers in your heart. That's God speaking to you. And we're coming from Purim where, you know, I'm not going to spend time on the Purim story and you all know it and we've studied it as well. And we learned a lot of things from it, but one just important thing that I think we can take with us is the whole Purim story starts where the Jewish people, they come to the feast of Ahasuerus. Okay. The King makes this celebration, this feast. And the sages say that the Jewish people had to attend the feast because there's a concept Dina de Malchuta Dina that the law of the kingdom or the law of the land is, is the law, even in Judaism. Like right now there are laws that are being mandated by our governments and our countries. And it's according to Judaism, we have to follow it like law. We can't have our own opinions about it. It becomes Jewish law. It becomes our law. So the Jews had to attend the feast. That was the law of the land. The king was making this feast. They had to attend out of respect for royalty. Where did they go wrong was that they took that out of context. They didn't just attend the feast because the law of the land is the law. They began to feel that they were indebted to Ahasuerus. They began to feel that they were in his hands. They began to feel that Ahasuerus' kindness or you know, his emotions were important to them and how he thought of them. And 
they actually had pleasure from the fact that he invited them. It should have been a neutral attendance. We have to attend because the, the government said. But they, they got wrapped up in it. They got excited about it. They actually felt excited that Ahasuerus had honored them and invited them. And they really started moving away from a centering in Hashem, from a centering in God. And that was the issue. So we're in a time right now where there are so many laws and, and so much going on outside of us. It's so easy to get caught up in the external, so to speak. It's not that we don't have to follow the rules and the laws we do, but our recognition, our centering has to be on God. If we think we're in the hands of nature, if we think we're in the hands of science or medicine or our governments or people, then we're losing the plot. And then God forbid this whole story will be in vain. So God is speaking to us through this story and we don't want to not hear his voice. So our first task as Jews is to center on God, is to recognize God's in this picture and he's telling me something. What is he telling me? So we're coming from Purim. We have that faith. We have that knowledge. And now we're moving to Pesach. What is the story of Pesach? And what um, it, what we know about the Jewish holidays is they didn't just happen once, you know this, they reoccur every year, meaning we're not just learning the story of Pesach, we're reliving it. And I'm sure you've all read things and heard things and probably studied Torah already that has given you insight as, you know, different connections that people are making to what we're experiencing now to the, to the exodus um, or the exile and the exodus. Um, and what we're going to focus on today is the idea that the exodus from Egypt, it wasn't complete. How do we know it wasn't complete? It wasn't a complete geula. It wasn't a complete redemption. It's very obvious the fact that, that we're still in exile. Had it been complete, we would have, we'd be living in, with the temple now. So the fact that we're still in exile and we're still completing this exile and redemption is because something wasn't complete in the times of Egypt. What wasn't complete? Um, what went wrong? And, and how are we completing it and fixing it today? So if you look at your source sheet, the very first source we're going to look at is source from Shemot, from Exodus, and the Pasuk reads as follows, I'll read it in the Hebrew and the English. Vayugad l'melech Mitzrayim, ki varach ha'am, vayahafech levav parov ha'avadav el ha'am, vayamru, ma zot asinu, ki shilachnu et Yisrael me'avdeinu. It was reported to Pharaoh that the people had fled, and Pharaoh and his servants had a change of heart towards the people, and they said, what is this that we have done, that we have released Israel from serving us? So the key words in this pasuk that we're going to focus on, that this class is going to evolve from, is the words kibarach ha'am, the people fled. It, it's such a strange concept. We, we, if we read the story of Egypt and how Hashem was redeeming the people, we had 10 plagues. The Egyptians were so clear that there was a God taking care of the Jewish people. It was very clear by now. It was like they didn't have to run like thieves in the night. They could have walked out with their heads held high, slowly and proudly, were being redeemed. Why are they running? Why are they fleeing? Why was their exodus in a manner of flight? It, it, it almost feels like if they would have just said, oh, I see some people need this. Does everyone have the source sheet? I see Sylvie's asking for it. Tell me if you have it, or should I resend it? Sylvie, are you in the oh, Maya notes? Oh, you got it? Yeah, you got it. Okay, amazing. Okay. So our question is, why was it in a manner of flight? And, and, and what wasn't wholesome about it, obviously? Because this idea of fleeing, of running, sounds like you're escaping something. You're not leaving proudly, comfortably, calmly. Something is 
you're running away from something. And that doesn't sound like a good thing. It doesn't sound like a wholesome thing. It doesn't sound like a healed people. It doesn't sound like a redeemed people. So as we know in Judaism, um, there's an external and internal process to everything, right? Everything has a body and a soul. Nothing is just what it seems. So if the body of the Exodus was that they were running, they were fleeing, and they left, so to speak, like thieves in the night, that means that spiritually, internally, the soul of the Exodus, they were running away from something. They were escaping something in the internal reality for the Jewish people was causing them physically to have to run, right? Anytime, whatever we do physically reflects the spiritual, reflects the internal. So they were physical slaves. Why were they physical slaves in Egypt? Why did we, didn't, why did we even have the Egyptian slavery? Because spiritually, we had an enslavement that we had to reckon with, right? We were slaves physically because we were slaves spiritually. We didn't know what it meant to be free, to use our free choice. But when they left, we thought we would think they're being redeemed. They're leaving as free people. And yet we see that they flee. They're running away. Something is not wholesome for them. So this discussion, actually, of the, the idea that they fled um, is, was discussed at a seder, a Pesach seder, of the previous Rebbe, of the Friedeke Rebbe, the Rebbe's father-in-law, 77 years ago, approximately 77, um, at, at a seder. Somebody asks this question. Somebody asks this question to the Rebbe who's leading the seder. And the question is, you know, why did they flee? And if you can, for a moment now, look at, just need to pull it up on my computer, look at the second source on your sheet. Okay, I'm going to read it here. Source number two. This is a quote from Isaiah, from Yeshayahu, which is a prophecy for the redemption, for the future. And the words are as follows. Ki lo Yeshayahu is prophesying, and he, sa he says, For not with haste shall you go forth, and not in a flurry of flight shall you go, for the Lord goes before you, and your rear guard is the God of Israel. So this is in complete opposition to what we just said about the exodus from Egypt, right? Yeshayahu is saying, in the future redemption, you will not go forth in a hurry. You're not going to be in haste. You're not going to be running. Hashem's going to be before you and Hashem's going to be behind you. You're going to be surrounded by God and there's not going to be this uh, intensity, this haste. So we see this, this contrast of the redemption from Egypt, the exodus from Egypt being in a haste, in a, in a way of fleeing, and the future redemption being a prophecy of it's going to be calm. Someone's knocking at my door, but I'm not going to answer. Is, is, do I have a noisy background, by the way, for anyone on the video? Okay, because my neighbors have music going. I'm so sorry, I can't answer right now. <laughs> okay. Okay, so... So here's the discussion that happened at the, at the Seder with the previous Rebbe. Somebody attending the Seder asked, he says, it seems like haste is a demerit. It seems like haste is not a good thing because what we're saying is that in the future Exodus, it's not going to be in haste. It's going to be calm. It's not going to be in a flurry of flight. Of, of, of flight. What, so what's going on? Is haste a positive thing? Is haste a negative thing? Um, you know, is, is there, are there two edges to this idea? So 
the Rebbe, the previous Rebbe answered, he said, this haste that seems to be a demerit, it seems to be something negative, right? Obviously, if the future redemption won't be in haste, there's something negative about this haste. But he says this haste that's a demerit, it also has a virtue to it. There's something good about the haste. What's good about the haste? He says that you leave your habit, that you, it's like you do this drastic move, right? You're, you're, you're a slave one night and the next day you're a free man. Like, meaning you, you, you literally just pull yourself out. God pulled the people out. It's like they were in this hab, you know, habitual routine of being slaves and suddenly they walked away. It's, let's just say somebody wants to lose weight, right? They're eating garbage all day. And it's like Sunday morning comes, my diet's starting. So it's like very dramatic. Like, oh, now I'm all healthy. Like I wake up, I eat, you know drink green tea and eat grapefruits and apples and oranges and you know lunch is salad and fish and like i'm just eating clean and it's like wait one second yesterday you were eating you know you ate the bakery out so is this a virtue is this not a virtue on the one hand we're like there's a there's something not wholesome here there's something not balanced here it's very dramatic what you did but the virtue what's happening here i'm getting screen shared is that me I'm so confused. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So the virtue in that though is that they've walked away from their habit. They have said, look, I'm making a drastic measure right now. I'm doing something dramatic and we don't yet know if it will last perhaps. Right. But in this moment, there's a virtue that I've left my habit. I've walked away. It doesn't matter. It was overnight. It was dramatic. It was drastic. Fine. But I've walked away and I'm committing to try and do this for the future. So you must have heard, you've heard these terms before in Hasidut, right? We have the term itkafya and itapcha. Itkafya is, is really, it's suppression. It's like the person who wakes up Sunday morning and, you know, they're eating clean. Now, they're really, we don't yet know yet if they're healed, if they're not going to go, you know, buy seven donuts tomorrow. We just don't know, right? It's, it's, it's probable that they're just suppressing it, right? There's an infection here. There's something not okay. There's something I'm enslaved to. There's an addiction, a problem, a pain, a struggle, something I haven't healed yet from, and I'm going to suppress it. Now, there's a virtue in that, the Rebbe says. There's a virtue that you're able to say, you know what? I'm, I'm walking away. That's the virtue. The, the, the lack of virtue is, if you know the concept of itapcha, which is transformation, transformation is that I'm not fighting anything anymore. I'm not suppressing. Every morning I have to suppress the urge to, you know, not follow a healthy diet. I'm not, itapcha is like the tzaddik lives in that state all the time. It's like, I'm not fighting anything. I am just a healed human. I am just, you know, I live in flow. I'm calm. There's no haste. There's no running. There's no suppression. There's no battle happening. Itkafya, I can be doing the right thing, but there's an internal battle that's happening. So. What happened when the Jewish people left Egypt, right? They, their physical liberation, it had a sense of escape to it. It says the people fled because this is what they were experiencing spiritually. In other words, God had to pull them out. They had to do this dramatic move. They had to run. They had to flee. They had to get out because there was no other way to end it. There was no other way to end the bad diet. It was like if you don't just wake up Sunday morning and decide to be good, you're just going to be doing this forever. So God said, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to pull you out. We're going to do this overnight. You're going to run. But if the Jewish people, the day after they had been redeemed, were put back in Egypt, 
they would have gone right back to being slaves. They weren't redeemed inside their hearts. They weren't redeemed inside their souls. Their, the healing was not internal. Sorry, I just see some questions. Oh, um, what are the two terms? Itkafia and itchapcha. Yeah. Itkafia. Do you want me to spell that in Hebrew? It's Aleph, Taf, Kaf, Pe, Yud, Aleph. Itkafia. And itchapcha is Aleph, Taf, He, Pe, Chaf, Aleph. Okay. Sorry, if I don't see chat stuff, somebody pick up your hand and tell me because I just noticed that by God's divine providence. Okay. <laughs> so I'll give you a personal example of, of what, it, what it feels like, what it looks like. Now, I don't really know if I, I, I was never diagnosed as a shopaholic, but I'll just self-diagnose that I think I was. <laughs> so when I lived in New York City, and UPS is very quick and easy and everything, you know, I, I don't think I've ever delivered anything to my house in Israel because I just don't know if I'm ever going to see it. I don't even know if they could find my address because I live in like an alley. So I don't even try. But in New York, you know, I had a normal address, a UPS truck passed my street every day. So there was this website called rulala.com. It still exists. I haven't purchased from it in over five years because I live in Israel. <laughs> but anyway, they have like designer stuff on sale. So. I worked from home and I love pretty things and I love fashion. And if there was whatever was modest in a nice color in my size, I thought it belonged to me. I didn't even like, it was not even a discussion. It was just like, that's for me. And I put it in my cart and order it. Now between you and me, I returned a lot of things just saying, but the point is that, you know, something about New York city, just like, I mean, how can you not shop? So I, I shopped a lot. I ordered a lot of things. I returned a lot too, but it was like this. It was just like, it was a thing. It was a habit. Now, at some point I moved to Israel and I remember one day thinking like, wow, I haven't ordered anything in a long time. And then I was like, Sarah, you haven't ordered anything in a long time because you can't. Meaning you have no idea. If you go back to New York City tomorrow and you work from home and you have access to Rulala, you're going to be ordering exactly the way you were before. Meaning, have you really healed this habit of purchase or is it just that you stepped out of the circumstances? So the Jewish people were like pulled out of Egypt, but if you had put them back in Egypt, so to speak, they would have been slaves again. Meaning it was almost like they were still slaves inside their hearts. They just weren't physically slaves because God said, I'm gonna pull you out of the circumstance. I'm gonna take you out of New York City. So you can't order anything anymore. I will tell you, postscript, that I have been back to New York City and I have seen that my, I, I actually healed the habit. I shop so much more mindfully. <laughs> so thank God for that. Um, may those be our biggest struggles. But of course, we all have much deeper, um, often more painstaking things to work through. But the idea being that you can assume to be healed from something because you're out of the circumstance, but you're actually still a slave in your heart. You're actually still enslaved inside of you. And that's the idea of itkafia. You're just suppressing the infection, but you haven't actually healed it. You haven't transformed it. Nora, I see your hands up. Go ahead. I can't see everyone's videos at once, so chat if I don't see your hand. Um, I'm wondering, because like, there's some things in my life where I've like gone through an experience, felt like, okay, I really did that wrong, but like now I'm a changed person. Okay, I wouldn't do that again. And then I end up like back in a similar experience and again I'm like maybe I don't fall exactly the same way but I feel like I fall again right. and so and then I develop like a aversion to putting myself into any circumstance that could be like that 
like even though like I feel like I would have to go through that again and do well to like by my own count to feel like I healed that part of myself mm. but I'm also afraid to put myself in a situation where like I'm vulnerable to being like that in that in those circumstances because like what's the what's the balance I guess between like keeping yourself in a healthy supportive environment and away from things that challenge like that yes like yes break you but then also like putting yourself in circumstances that challenge you so that you actually can grow like where how do you find that balance Right. That's a very good question. I feel like the first thought is when you're feeling like you're still in the throes of your struggle, don't test yourself. You know, it's like somebody says, I'm an alcoholic. I drink alcohol. Like don't test yourself. Right. They say go, no alcohol in your house. Don't have access. Don't go by. Don't have access. Don't, you know, you, 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 you go extreme almost like you go extreme. You, you go extreme. Like, like I'm not allowed to, you know, I can't make a, I don't know, I can't make Kiddush on wine because I'm an alcoholic, right? That's what people will say. So you do need to go extreme when you're still in the throes of the struggle. But what we're, what our whole class is, is, is going to sort of move towards is that ultimately you want to be able to be back in the situation where you were once so unable to, to manage it and now you can manage it again. Now, I think that Hashem ultimately pushes us like, you know, you don't have to be your own uh, proctor, you know, or doctor sort of putting yourself like, you know, I, I think it happens naturally, sort of. I think as we are more and more healed, we notice that we are facing things again and we face them differently. So there is this concept that like, you don't need to, I once heard a beautiful statement that, you know, there's your shlichut, your, your mission, your, your thing that you're here for. And then there's your tikkun, your rectification. Your shlichut is the thing you should focus on. Like, go where you're cold, go where you work best, go where you're happy. Your tikkun, your rectification, God is going to push you there. Like, you don't need to be, like, throwing yourself into the difficult places. He will make sure you get there so that you're healed. And, and you'll know when, when you're able to be there again. Um, but as long as you're feeling challenged, definitely take all precaution to not test yourself. Yeah. Does that answer your question? Okay. Okay, one thing we understand is that the people, they leave Egypt, right? They've walked away from it, but it's like it's hanging over them. This, this, this Egypt, this enslavement is hanging over them. It's still in their psyche. Like, they almost have to, like, not look back. Because if they look back, they're going to go back, right? You don't want to look at the thing that you keep falling in, because if you keep looking at it, you're going to go there. Now, what were they struggling with? We want to talk about that for a minute. What were they struggling with? What was their addiction? What was their stuck place, right? What was their thing? They were victims of slavery, okay? They were victims of servitude. They, I mean, nobody wants to be a slave, but they got so used to it that they were just like, this is all we know. We serve, we are slaves, and we don't have free choice. You know, what's beautiful about the concept of service is that service itself is neutral. Service is not a bad thing. It's not bad to serve somebody. Service could be a beautiful thing. I mean, it can be as, you know, as simple and as easy as, you know, I want to be a waitress. I'm serving people in a restaurant. It could, it could be, you know, deeply um, meaningful and fulfilling. I serve uh, an older person. I help somebody. It, I mean, there's so many forms of service that, Service could be, service is a neutral thing. You could pull it either way. The problem with their service was that they weren't choosing it. They were enslaved to it. They had to serve the Egyptians, right? And they were so stuck, even though they hated having no choice in their service, they, they just had gotten so used to it that it was just like, this is what we do. 
um, what happens is the, the slavery becomes so intense and Hashem sort of, he exacerbates it. He makes it, he makes it loud. He makes it chaotic. He makes it messy. He makes it difficult so that they would finally realize this is not good for us. Because unfortunately, we all know there are things that we get stuck in that we don't even realize are problematic. We just get used to it. It's comfortable. It's what we know. And so Hashem had to orchestrate their slavery, their reality. He had to sort of knock on the door so loud so that they would be like, okay, something's wrong. Like they had to shatter. They had to break. They had to realize that the pain of slavery was not good, was not something they wanted. And ultimately they turned to Hashem, right? We all know if you read the story of the Jews in Egypt, they cry out to God at some point. They're like, we can't do this anymore. And that moment was a beautiful moment. The moment that we recognize Hashem in our struggles, the moment we say, Hashem, I can't do this anymore. I'm powerless. I need you. It's like, you know, the 12-step programs. The first step, I believe, is, is a recognition of a higher power. That first recognition of God is critical for the healing process. And it's the first thing we need to do. And it's the first thing we always need to do. We saw it in the story of Purim. The first thing they had to do was recognize Hashem. We see it now in our, the times that we're in now. The first thing we need to do is, Hashem, what are you telling me? This recognition of Hashem. And, you know, it only happens, unfortunately, when we're so shattered, when we're, we're so broken from that much struggle that we turn to God. What happens is, we're, you, this is typically what happens. We're shattered. We cry out to Hashem. And then we make some dramatic change, right? Something dramatic happens um, in, in the in the experience of the Jewish people in Egypt, Hashem really helped them with that dramatic change. They had the 10 plagues. It was very obvious through the 10 plagues that the Egyptians were being hit and the Jews were not. It was like something very dramatic was, you know, separating them from this enslaved world of Egypt to their own Jewish stature. It was like, you could see the separation, right? The Egyptians had blood. The Jews did not. The Egyptians had frogs. The Jews did not. It was like, it was like, we're separating out of this enslaved society. If anyone uh, was in my class about Elazar ben um, the story of the man in the Talmud who performs this dramatic teshuva, I was thinking, I mean, this was just my own thought, that it's sort of similar to what happens to him. He has this dramatic teshuva at the end of his life, where he has this one hour where he completely switches from being the most immoral man of his time to being, his, he's called Rebbe Elazar ben there's this dramatic change that happens that's incredible. It's incredible. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful switch. But what we learned in that class is that ultimately his soul reincarnates again because there's a whole phase after that he didn't get to do. There's like a, there's a whole, in, like an incremental integrative healing that has to happen after the drama. So we can't just make the dramatic change. We can't just wake up Sunday morning and say we're eating clean. You know, by Tuesday, we're going to be eating not clean again. We're going to be doing, we're going to be back to what we were doing before because the drama, the dramatic change is, is not enough. We have to have a stage where we integrate. And unfortunately, the Jewish people, I don't want to say they weren't good at it. I'm sure they could have done it, but they were very, very broken. They were very, very tired. And it seems that they failed to take that last element of the process and, 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 and process it. They, it's, and it's really the hardest part. You know, I, it, we almost can't have judgment on them because 
we see it in our own lives, the hardest part of any change, of any decision, is not the dramatic decision. It's not the commitment, I'm going to be different. It's where I need the most grit and the most staying power is, is those long, painstaking days where my habit comes up again and again and again and tests me and puts me in different situations and reminds me of how you know, much I struggle. That's, that's where the hardest work is. And the sages say that the last generations of exile were known, it was known that it was going to be the hardest. What we're going through is the hardest work that our collective soul has ever had to do. And apparently we volunteered to do it. So if we volunteered to do it, it means we have the light and the stamina and the staying power and the grit to, to do it. But, but just to comfort us, the sages, the sages all knew this was going to be the hardest generation because we're in this last phase where, where we, have to, we, have to, we have to pick up those tiny pieces. We have to face the tiny particles, the tiny parts of exile that are not yet healed, the ones that everyone wants to run away from, the, runs, the ones that nobody had patience for before us. Those, that's the work that we're here, that we're being called to do. What happens with the Jewish people is they're, they're so tired, they're so broken, they don't really do this process. It's not complete. And we see this when they hit the sea, they hit the Yamsuf, right? They hit the sea, suddenly they're crippled. You would think they were redeemed. Like, guys, act like you're above nature. Why don't you all walk into the sea? Why did only one man walk into the sea? They come to the sea and they feel crippled. They had not integrated what it meant to be a servant of God. Meaning you're no longer servants to the Egyptians. You're no longer a victim of nature. You are now able to transcend nature. So nature's in front of you. Don't be overwhelmed by it. But what happens? They come to the sea and they start to cry. And they call out and they're like, what are we going to do? Maybe we should go back to Egypt. They're like, we can't deal with this. They're like, suddenly we see how much they're still slaves. We see how they're so broken. We see how they haven't healed. And Hashem says, um, now's not the time for crying. That was ages ago. The crying was supposed to happen back in Egypt when you cried. Now you're meant, you're meant to have risen already. And only select individuals had really healed deeply. And we see Nachshon ben Aminadav, Nachshon the son of Aminadav, um, he walks into the ocean and he displays the idea of a completely healed process. He sees nature in front of him and he says, I'm not a victim of nature. I'm not a victim of anything. I am a part of God. I am a servant of God. I have free choice. I have a soul. I can transcend nature. I can transcend anything. I'm going to walk into this water because God said, I'm going to give you the tar on the other side. So there is no obstacle for me. And he, you could say that Nachshon was like a leader at that time. In that moment, he was a leader. And you know, if we want to break down the, the nation, we all are at different, you know, some of us maybe are, you know, a few pitter-patter steps ahead of, of others. Some of us are a few pitter-patter steps behind. And some of us are, you know, we all have something we can share and help and guide each other with in this process. So yes, there are some times, and of course, then there are the, the sages and the tzaddikim who are miles ahead of us who are completely healed like Nachshon and and they lead us they guide us they walk into the ocean they show us don't be a slave you're, you're redeemed but even though there are leaders the people still have to heal right if we're going to be dragged out by our leaders we're still not going to feel like a redeemed people so what I'd like to do now is is go back to the story of Egypt and see what um what God did for us he was trying to 
show us how to heal. And I sort of feel like we're luckier, although we have a harder task than any generation before us, in, in a beautiful way, we're luckier because it's like we're in the desert again. We're lost, right? We're trying to find this beautiful redemption, but we're not lost without a map. You know, we have the map. We have the map because it's happened so many times before us in history that we can go back and read every story, every struggle and redemption that has happened, every mini struggle and redemption that has happened. And we can take that guide map and say, okay, what do we need to do next? Where are we going wrong? What did they do wrong? How can we rectify that? It's like, we're, we're you know, we're looking for the treasure, but we have the map. So the story of Pesach and how God tried to guide the people to their ultimate redemption is actually the guide map that we can use today to um, head towards our total redemption. So we're going to go back to our source sheet for a moment. Does anyone have anything to share or ask? I know I'm just, I'm like on a roll and I'm also watching the time. So I want to get through it all, but Please feel free to raise your hand, comment, write, ask, unmute yourself. <laughs> okay. Hi, Sylvie. <laughs> I don't hear you. I don't know why. Oh, really? Oh, no, now I do. Now I do. Okay. Um, I guess I just have a more general question about the idea of like our physical sufferings mimicking our spiritual ones. And if there's, mm. if it's like one follows the other or they go hand in hand like is it like does it mean that either we have like this physical struggle and then we realize that it was spiritual all along or like that interplay between those two so i mean i'm i'm answering this just based on actually after teaching you girls for a while and and seeing every time i learn something and teach it it seems to be that it's always the physical is reflecting the spiritual meaning ultimately we're spiritual beings right ultimately we're neshamot we're souls the body is is the channel through which we're functioning in this world but the body is sort of there to uh to be the signpost to be like okay yes something spiritual is is out of order Something spiritual is off kilter. Now, I don't intend with that statement to explain death or sickness or cancer or anything. I mean, it's impossible, right? There's so many, we don't understand the whys and hows of God, but all we can do, and, and this is what the Rebbe always said, you know, when people were unwell, if you read his responses to them, there was always like a spiritual thing he offered, like check your mezuzot, um, check the level of kashrut you're eating. And it's like, why? What's the connection? Because the connection is there. It's not that, you know, we don't know the full picture, but we do know that the more we can rectify spiritually, the more uh, the physical will please God reflect that. Um, so yeah, it's definitely the, the physical reflecting the spiritual. We're, we're ultimately, essentially, we're, we're, we're souls and the body is, is the vessel for that. Um, I'm just sending a source sheet. Okay, does anyone else, does, is, does anyone else have anything they wanted to ask or share? Um, hi, I'm Katya. I'm friends with Nora. Hi, Katya. Um, hi. Um, so I guess my question is, I don't know if this necessarily makes sense, but is this whole like exile and redemption and kind of what we're going through right now, like part of, do you think it's part of the path to Mashiach? Just like based on the sources, it looks like we left Egypt in haste and then we took a slow way back. And then when we were kicked out, like prior to, you know, with the first temple, that was we had to leave in haste. And then the perm story took place over a short period of time. So do you think that this is kind of like one of the, like a continuation of that, like a haste of the virus and then a slow way back? 
Yeah, I mean, you're on point. No, 100%. I, I, this is not something we're even intuiting. This is something that, I mean, we know from the Torah that the, the, we're, we're part of a chain of souls. We're not, we don't, our generation doesn't stand on its own. We're standing on the shoulders of everyone before us. And we're part of a process that began long ago. In fact, Kabbalah says that the, the sparks of our souls are offshoots of the souls that left Egypt, meaning we're literally completing that work. So 100%, and every story in history that followed was another completion. And, and like I said, it's not just what we're going to complete collectively in our generation. It's also built from each one of our personal redemptions, meaning each one of us can think to ourselves, what are the things I struggle with? What are the things I haven't yet fully healed from? As I heal from those things, I assist the healing of the nation because the collective healing is based on the personal healing. Um, so yeah, 100%, you're totally on point. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much. Okay, sure. Hi, Sarah. It's Holly. Hi, Holly. Um, how are you? <laughs> I'm like, I can't just say hi. Like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was, are we in the healing phase right now, or are we supposed to already be diving into the water like Nachjun? Like, where, where are we at? I missed <laughs> I the first you. 20 minutes. I hear you. So it seems to be, meaning Nachshon was able to walk into the water because he was able to walk into the water. So if yeah. anyone on this chat is able to walk into the water, walk into the water, whatever that means in your personal life, right? If you're there, you're there. Like I, you know, nobody can, only you can gauge how healed you feel, right? But I would say, if you look at the collective of our nation, there is still struggle. There is certainly still struggle. I mean, you don't even have to look at the collective. Let's say, I, you know, I can look at myself and say, do I feel Mashiach inside my heart? No, there's days where my faith falls. There's days where I'm not sure about things. There's days where I say, Hashem, can you lift that anxiety? I thought I was there. I'm not fully there yet. So yeah. those little pieces that we feel inside of us are, I would say, a guide that we are, we're in the final throes for sure. We're, we're at that last stage, but there's still work that we're doing. We're still grappling. Um, and, and you look around the world, we're still grappling. I mean, there is still, like we said, there's death, there's sickness, there's still pain. Um, you know, there are definitely individuals, like we said, there are tzaddikim who may already be tasting Mashiach. They're already seeing how it's just a mask. They're already seeing how, you know, and that's what we say when you meet a tzaddik, he looks at you and he sees how nothing that you see as an obstacle is an obstacle. He's like, it's not an obstacle. It's a gold mine. You're there. You have all the tools you need to heal. Like you're sitting stuck, but you can walk through the ocean. That's, we say actually that that's the gift of a tzaddik, that he sees he sees our healing that we cannot see. And so thus we say when you meet a tzaddik or you connect with a tzaddik, you connect to that part of you that can transcend the places you thought you were stuck in. But we're all ultimately able to, to get to that level. We're all ultimately able to get there. Um, so yeah, I would, say, I would say we're in, yeah, we're in that, you know, you could call it like, you know, we're, we're, we're dealing with those last, those last stubborn things that are still holding on to the exile. And, and I think we all feel it inside of ourselves. So, um, thank yeah, you for sure. Okay. So any other questions before we go back to the source sheet or are we good? Okay. So let's have a look at the source sheet again. Now I just have to pull it up on my screen. What we're going to look at right now is the third quote. Okay. So I'm going to read it. And it was when Pharaoh let the people go. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, 
Kikarovhu, because it was near. Ki amar Elokim, because God said, Pen yinachem ha'am birotam milchama v'shavu mitzrayma. Perhaps when, if the people are attacked and there's war and the Philistines attack them or there's some sort of clash and something goes wrong, they'll be so close to Egypt, they'll reconsider and they'll be like, uh, I know we left, but let's go back. So what does God do? Vayasev Elokim, God leads the people around. Vayasev Elokim Ata'am, he leads the nation around. Derech Hamidbar, by way of the desert, Yamsuf, to the sea. Vachamushim alu b'nei Yisrael, Meretz Mitzrayim. And the children of Israel were armed when they went up out of Egypt. So we're going to look at Rashi, um, because he, as he so beautifully does, so simply but so deeply explains is going to really guide us to the mystical meaning of what's happening here. So he says, God doesn't take them the way of the plishtim because it's close. He says, kikarovhu, because it was close. And what's wrong, with, what's wrong with taking them the short way? What's wrong with taking them the close way? I just read in a, one of the Torah commentaries that apparently from Egypt to Jerusalem, it could have been an eight-day trip. Okay, now we know what happened. It was... It was 40 years, right? He takes them the long way and he take, they cross the sea and then they're 40 years in the desert. So very much not the, not the short way. So he says it was near and God understood that it would be easy to return by that same route to Egypt. Okay, so what does he do? Vayasev hesibam, I'm reading the second line of Rashi, hesibam min haderech hapshuta laderech ha'amuka. He led them around from a direct route to, to a circuitous route. Never, haven't never said that word before. <laughs> uh, he leads them from, this, from a direct route to a circular route or to a route that goes all the way around. Okay, so there's a few things. I mean, you could probably already, without me even saying anything, just pick up what's going on here. There's this notion that... You know, and, and you know this also from the Tanya. What's the Tanya called? It's called the, uh, now, I'm, now I'm confusing my short and long. The Tanya is the short, long way, right? The long, short way. <laughs> I forgot. The long, short way. <laughs> I'm like, they it both sound good suddenly. The short, yeah. long way sounds good to me. <laughs> Say again. Like it seems long, but you actually. Exactly. It's the long, short way. Exactly. So it, it's the long way, but ultimately it's going to be the short way. So here there was a chance for God to take them the short way. But what he understood was, uh-uh, I take them the short way. If, if when we're healing from something, if we go the short way, right? If we try to go the fast route, if we try to just do it quick, like, come on, can we just get past this? Then the minute we hit a bump in the road, the minute there's a war, the minute something comes that challenges us, that, that questions us, we're going to want to go back to Egypt. We're going to be like, you know what? I can't do this. Forget it. I'm going back. And you know what? It's really easy to go back because Egypt's right here. So God said, uh-uh, I'm going to take you the long way. I'm going to take you around. I'm going to take you so far away from Egypt that even if you hit a, a rock, even if you hit the ocean, even if you hit whatever, something that troubles you, you're going to be so far from Egypt that you're going to only be able to go forward, meaning you're going to already understand that it's the long, short route, that 
this is the only way to get home. This is the only way to get to Jerusalem. Because the other way, it looks like it's, you can get to Jerusalem fast, but you know what? You're so close to get back to Egypt. Any tiny nick in the plan, you're going to run right back. And we know this from ourselves, right? When we try to do things too fast, when we try to rush it, what happens is we, we end up being right back at square one. We bounce right back to where we were before. So something very beautiful about Vayasev and God led them around. What, what does the word mean? So it has, there are the Torah commentators give different explanations for Vayasev. The first one, which is just very beautiful, the word Vayasev also comes from the word Sivuv, to like uh, surround. So Vev, Sivuv, and what uh, the commentators say that, what does it mean God led them around? Not just that he led them around and he took them a long route, but that he surrounded them. Just like a shepherd surrounds his flock, Vayasev, that God led them around, is alluding to, he didn't just take them the long route. When he took them the long route, he said, I'm going to hold you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to surround you. You're going you're gonna to come and hit obstacles on this long route. It's going to be a desert. Right before the desert, it's going to be an ocean. There's going to be stuff but I'm going to be surrounding you. I'm going to be holding you. Don't be afraid of anything you hit because I'm here. I'm with you. I'm protecting you. And it's what, you know, in our personal lives, it's God looking at us and saying, listen, if you commit to the long route, if you commit to heal down to that very last detail, I promise I will hold you through it all. I will carry you through it all. Even those moments when you think you're going to fall, I'm going to be there. I'm going to be surrounding you because the long route incorporates in it the fact that I am holding you. We see it in the words, right? Vayasev, he leads them around, but he doesn't lead them around and leave them alone. He leads them around and he holds them. And the second um, explanation that I saw for this word, which is just beautiful, is the root of this word is also similar to the, to the word um, that is given for leaning at the seder, right? If you know the manishtana, um, we say, we all lean. So Vayasev, and he led them around, is the, the, one of the commentaries say that he, he caused them to recline. What does that mean? He caused them to recline like royalty, that he took care of us in the desert. We were really treated royally in the desert, right? We had the clouds, we had the food from heaven, we had the well, we were treated like royalty. He like, he sort of, so to speak, reclined us. He said here, I'm already going to make you feel like royalty. Yeah, you're on the long route. Yeah, there's a lot of work to do. But he caused us to recline. And actually, this is the reason why we recline at the Seder. Why do we recline at the Seder? Because we're commemorating the Exodus. We're commemorating the fact that we are free. And we recline in, in, a, you know, in a movement of royalty, so to speak. The sages say, you know, even if you're not reclining, the, um, there's different customs. For, for example, I believe Sephardic women recline, Ashkenazic women do not. But the idea is that you behave at the seder in a way of royalty. Your behavior, the way you sit, the way you eat, the way you conduct yourself at the seder should be in a royal way. So there's something very beautiful here. This is not just commemorative. It's not just he treated us like royalty in the desert. And so we recline at the seder because we're free and we're royal and we're remembering how he took care of us. But when he takes us the longer route, when Hashem pushes you to deal with your stuff in a very real way, to face your struggles down to the very last detail, and even though it's going to be a long, painful route, 
he's really offering you freedom in that moment. He's offering you the ability to become a royal free person. Because he's saying, if you are willing to face every last detail, you will never be a slave again. So even now, as I take you a long route, I'm already reclining you. I'm already you. I'm already giving you a taste of royalty. It's like the free person you're going to be at the end when you get to Jerusalem, when you get to your personal redemption, is intertwined with everything you do on this long journey. It's not just, it's, I'm not going to give you a gift at the end of royalty. It's you're leaning into the journey now is what will be your leaning at the end. So, and, and this, I was just thinking the words in English were just so perfect as well. Like we lean at the sitter, we recline, right? In a way of royalty, but we say in English, like to lean into something is to, is to face it, is to move forward, is to not back down, is to not run away, is to not flee. And it's sort of like God saying, if you lean in now, you will lean in at the end like a royal. And even more beautifully, when we lean into our struggles, we're really leaning into chaos. We're leaning into the unknown. It's, it's like right now, what we, what we are all leaning into, you know, whether we you know, know people close to us or don't know people close to us who are not you know, well or struggling, or there's, I mean, there's pain and sickness on a global level, level right now, so it doesn't matter how close to home it feels or not. We all have to lean into this very, very, you know, great uncertainty. But God says, if you lean into the chaos, if you lean into the unknown, eventually you're going to lean into order. You're going to lean at the seder. Seder, the word seder means order. So the Pesach seder follows the chaos of our work, right? We have this chaotic, unknown, uncertain 40 years in the desert. We have no idea what's happening. We're lost. We're like, in the desert without a map, right? But God says, lean into this unknown. Eventually, you're going to lean into an ordered, an ordered something, a seder, something that feels ordered. And it's sort of like God saying, I will make order from the chaos. It looks to you chaotic right now. It looks to you like there's no meaning. Like what's going on? This is random. This is crazy. This is chaotic. It's a mess. God says, I will make order from the chaos. Why will I make order from the chaos? Because it was never chaos to begin with. And, and this is something very deep that is very true in Judaism. When we feel chaotic in our lives, when we see chaos, when we feel like things don't make sense, what we're really looking at is light without a vessel. That's all that it is. There is, in Judaism, we don't have a plural, there's not like, you know, plural gods or, or God and the devil. There's just one God. So if you see chaos in this world, it is the light of God without a vessel. It's the light of God that is unordered yet. It hasn't yet been contained. And so it looks to you like chaos because it doesn't have a vessel. It doesn't have an order. There's no seder, right? And, and we actually say that the struggles in our lives, the pain comes from the yud hey of God's name, right? We, God's name is yud and a hey and a vav and a hey. The vav and the hey is order. It's, it's, uh, it's, it comes down in an ordered form. The yud and the hey is like, the light that is transcendent, that doesn't have a vessel. And what God is really saying is, if you can lean into this light that appears chaotic to you, but you can recognize that it's light, and you can see that your pain is actually a gold mine, then the light can find a vessel. It can find a home. It will be reshaped. It will have a form, and it will become ordered. It will become seder. It, would, it will feel like a redemptive Pesach seder in the end. So... 
are leaning in in this desert right now, are leaning in in this unknown, are leaning in as we travel the long route, is intrinsically connected to our ability to eventually lean into an ordered, beautiful, redemptive seder. And what we're being asked to do is not to run away. It's very tempting to run away from the chaos, to say this chaos is overwhelming, it doesn't look right, it doesn't look divine, it doesn't look godly, and the whisper of God is, no, it's light. It's my light. It's just my light without a vessel. Can you have the courage to embrace this light and give it form, give it shape? Understand that what I've given you is not something negative. It's beautiful light that I'm asking you to, to give it a form, to give it a shape, to give it a home. And what we want to understand now is how can we do that, right? How can we give shape or form to our pain and our struggles? How, how, do, we even, how do we even deal with it, right? This, it is chaotic. It is unordered. Um, and here's where we move into, hopefully it'll feel a little bit even more practical. Um, again, I feel like a lot of this is so personal. You know, I guess we each only know the things that we struggle with, but I hope that all these ideas are things that you can apply to whatever it is you're still grappling with in your personal life. But we're gonna, we're gonna talk about some things very practically right now. So how do we heal this chaotic light that we have globally, you know, cosmically, and also privately? The answer is that the ingredients that you need for your redemption, the ingredients that you need for your healing are, exist in your exile, okay? Meaning, the same way the Jewish people, you know, their redemption was to be servants of God, was to have free choice to choose to serve God. That was the, the healed sense of the people, that they come to the ocean and they realize that they have the ability to connect to something transcendent and they can choose to walk into the ocean. The ingredient that was true in exile for them was the idea of being servants, servitude, to serve. That was not something that was a problem in their exile. It was just how they were using it. You know how we always say about our traits or our character, you know, anything we have about ourselves, we always say, oh, it's a double-edged sword, right? The things that we're really good at, they have this other edge to them that there are greatest struggles. The reason why we call it the double-edged sword is because the things that we could be the greatest at have the same ingredients as the things that we could be grappling with our whole lives. And that's not a bad thing. That's a sign that you have light that can either be chaotic or can be ordered. It can either be, you know, degraded, it can be messed, it can be used in a messy way, or it can be elevated. It can be used in a divine way. And I think this is why people who become, you know, when you meet someone who's a master at something, you know, and you say, wow, how are, you're such a master at this. Like you're so, how are you so good at this? This is amazing. How did it happen? They never, they rarely say the people who are a master, I'm not talking about prodigies. I'm talking about lots of people who are born that way. I'm talking about people who have mastered something. They tell you it took me years. It took me years and years and years. And if only you knew how bad I was at this growing up, it was my greatest weakness. It was the thing I was terrible at. And today you look at them, you're like, you're a master. You're my Buddha. Like, I want to learn from you. And, and the only reason you say that is because the only reason you can see that and say that and ask that is because they've actually grappled with every detail of that light and they've given it form. They've given it shape. So it's like your exile is your medicine. 
you know, we tend to think the exile, like, get away from me. Like, go away. How do I get out of this? How do I run away from this? The Jewish people, like, they fled. They're like, go away. We don't want to be here. The fu- that's fine. You can run away right at the beginning. But if you don't sit down and unpack your exile down to its very last detail, you'll never be healed because your medicine exists in your exile. Somebody have a question? I feel like I heard something open. Okay. So, yeah, can I ask a question? Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Can you give like an example of how within, like, I guess like explaining more about unpacking your exile? Yeah, 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 totally. I'll give you a, a good example now. I'll give, actually give you the example of, um, I mean, first of all, obviously, maybe it's hard to understand it with the Jewish people, but the element of slavery for the Jewish people, the fact that they were slaves, that was the element they needed to just flip 180 degrees. Being a servant was not the issue. It was that they were using the service in a victimhood way instead of a free choice way. The Jewish people were meant to leave Egypt and become servants of God. The, The reason why Judaism, you know, Jews still struggle with Judaism today, and we still have questions like, you know, it feels like, I don't want to keep this mitzvah. Why do I have to? I feel like I'm being forced. I'm not sure. Do I get to choose it? It's because we're still healing from that. We still don't understand that we can choose to serve God. We're still questioning that. We're still, we have remnants of exile. We still think we're slaves. We still think, oh, maybe I'm being a slave to God. We're still like showing up little bits of our, you know, of our exile. Um, I'll give you another example, though. We know that Moshe, who ended up being, you know, he was the great leader of Israel. He was the great leader and he was also the ultimate speaker of the Jewish people, right? He spoke for us. He fought for us. When we sinned gravely, he, he got forgiveness for us. And he, he, was, he was almost like the man of words in the, in the entire Chumash. Like he speaks for the Jewish people. He starts out not being a speaker at all. In fact, his greatest weakness is that he cannot speak at the beginning, right? And he, not just he cannot speak, he, he says, I don't want to speak. I feel like I'm not meant to be a speaker. It's like, his, his thing that he's grappling with is, is the very thing that ultimately is his greatest strength. Moshe becomes the great speaker of the Jewish people and the ultimate redeemer because he redeemed himself from that uh, place of struggle inside himself. So, I, 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 can, I mean, I can give you, is that, is that an example that you feel can, can sort of resonate? Or is what you're saying that within the, within the exile it's not fully bad basically like you can find is that what you're saying that you can find within it something that will actually like help you transform it to positivity like to 100 percent. i think i'm even again there's definitely an element of exile it doesn't mean we don't pray for exile to end right we totally pray for exile to end and we and we don't want to extend it so we could do more work or whatever it is but i'm not even saying that there's an element. I think it's all of it. I think that, right, there's no, there's no, no bad comes from heaven. What does that mean? It means that even this exile that looks like, oh, maybe there's just a piece of it that's good. No, you know what? Every single ingredient in it can be flipped, can be used for your redemptive self. And this is where it, get very, this is where it gets very personal, that each of us have to ask ourselves, this little thing that I'm dealing with, how can I bring light? How can I use that in a way of light? You know, this tiny little thing that I'm still struggling with. How can, I, how can that propel me for something good? We don't want to throw anything away. We want to figure out how to recycle all those things that we seemingly thought we had to run away from, that we had to throw out, and figure out how we can use that divinely. 
um, I mean, in general, this is just a general concept for, let's say, addiction, right? Addiction is this feeling of, um, I need to be filled. I need to be filled with something. Like, I feel, you know, there's this, like, lack of, lack of um, feeling sated, right? And then the addiction could be whatever it is, a thousand different things. The craving to be filled is not a problem. That's not a bad thing. That's a beautiful thing. To feel your emptiness and to want to fill it is a beautiful thing. The problem is, what are you going to fill it with, right? What are you craving to be filled with and what are you going to fill, fill it with? And so the addict ultimately recognizes that I'm going to take that longing. I'm not going to run away from the longing. I'm not going to try and forget that I have voids inside of me. Hold the voids. Keep them. God gave you the voids. That's what you need. You're just going to take that void and you're going to satiate yourself spiritually. So it's, it's like the state of exile is not the problem. It's what are you doing with the state of exile? Meaning the exile, you know, we say the word, the, the word gola is exile and geula is just the introduction of the letter Aleph, right? You just need to bring God into the picture and you will see how your exile is, is just energy gone awry. It's just light that doesn't have a vessel yet. But the, 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 the elements and the ingredients and the structure of your exile is not an issue. It's just, can you be creative enough? Can you be divinely connected enough to use them in the right way? Um, even just like, forget about exile and redemption for a minute. Um, people say that anxiety, like when somebody has you know, high anxiety, it's, it's, they're usually highly creative and sensitive souls that have anxiety. It's like you're, you're create, you have so much creativity, so much energy, it's just gone awry. And so it becomes anxiety. It's like energy being funneled the wrong way. The, the fact that you have anxiety is not something you should, uh, I don't know, destroy. It's just, okay, there's this energy that's gone in the wrong direction, right? The energy is fine. The light is fine. It's God. It's divine. Just channel it in the right way. Just give it the right home. Just build it the right vessel. And the energy at this time of year, before Pesach, right, we're almost Rosh Chodesh Nisan, is precisely for this deep healing process. And so we have the chance now, I think it's not, it's definitely not by chance that we are in the state that we're in right now. It's almost like God is saying, the energy at this time of year is to take the light that appears chaotic and to give it divine form. And we are each literally sitting on our own redemption. We're sitting on our redemption. Your struggle is your state of redemption upside down. So it's the double-edged sword, right? You're on one edge of the sword, just go to the other end. I see, Nora, your hand is up. Go ahead. I was talking to a friend yesterday yeah. who was really challenging, not, not me, like he sent me a video that a rabbi had recorded about, like now that we're all in quarantine, like can we take this time to focus more on our davening and to be more connected to Hashem and all this stuff. And he was really pushing me to like help him understand, I guess, <laughs> in a nice way of putting it. Um, he's saying, you know, people are dying. And like, I, for me, this also became really real. Like this morning I got a message that a friend of mine, her father passed away this morning. Mm -hmm. And it's really crazy. Like for me, this is the first time that it really hits home. It's not just a Jew, a person in the world. It's like, it's, it's my circle. Right. And, and he was saying like, how can we say that, you know, when, when something is difficult in our own life, we could say, okay, that's happening and I'm supposed to learn from it. But for him, like he's got nothing to learn from it. He just died. And for us, like, how can we say that another person died so that we should learn something from it? Like that sounds so mm -hmm. not Jewish. 
is what yeah. he was saying. You know, like, I, I don't know if you have a way that you would like begin to respond to that kind of question of like, how can we take people literally like being on the brink of life and death and dying and speak about the message that we should take for our davening? Like, isn't that so insensitive? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, uh, you know, the way it's being phrased doesn't sound right. It, you know, I guess it doesn't sound very palatable. I think the first thing is we don't understand God and we know that we don't understand God. We're not here to try and explain or, or justify or, and, and we don't want to, we want to pray for this to end. So we don't ever want to say that someone else's pain is so that you can learn something, right? Like that, like that's giving a reason for it really. That's giving a reason. And we're not meant to give reasons for God's behavior because we don't understand him. We're in a different, we're just in a different plane. We weren't, we weren't meant to understand him. Um, on that level. Um, you're reminding me though of, I was once on a bus and I was, uh, I wasn't in a great state at the time. I was going to actually to Hebron. I wanted to go pray. And I was really feeling things very dark at the time, you know, like just the pain of the world and, and why does God do the things he does and how can we understand it and all of that. And I was sitting next to a beautiful girl who she just started sharing things and she actually was going through really painful things. I don't know if family members of her were sick with cancer. It was really terrible. And I started crying. I was just like, I think I was crying more than her. I was just like, I was like, yeah, you're feeding my, 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 my uh, campaign right now. This is not okay. Like, where is God? And she looked at me and she said, we are not here to try and understand God. We are here to try and understand ourselves. And I, I just remember thinking, first of all, that was such a, such a humble statement for her to say, because she could have been angry at God too. And I guess she had entered a higher phase than I was in. And she was saying, this is not about giving reason or, or explaining things. Every day we wake up and we try and understand ourselves. We try and understand where have I not yet healed? What else can I do for the universe? I, we don't need to make connections between things that are happening, meaning things that are happening to someone else that are negative to, to propel me to do positive. That, that shouldn't be that way. You know, if I, in my private life, somebody passes and it propels me to prayer, beautiful, but I don't think that's not the reason they passed away. I mean, God doesn't work like that. And, and anyway, I'm not here to explain God. I'm here to, I'm here to understand myself. I'm here to, you know, take more action on my own. So the correlation of, of events is definitely not... It's not what we're meant to be doing. Um, does that sort of sit better? Okay. Um, anyone else have something they want to ask or share before we move on? Okay. So I, 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 you know, I like to think of it as like, every one of us needs to find the X factor in our exile. Like there's an X factor piece. There's something in your exile that it's like, from this, you're going to become the master of something. It's like, you know, if you meet the person who's the master of meditation, they will probably tell you they, you know, were almost ADD. Like, you know what I mean? It's like, usually we start off the opposite extreme of what our healed state is. So you can almost... Anyway, <laughs> if, we, if, we, if we can look at the thing that we're grappling most with, and imagine what would the flip of that be? That's the X factor in our exile. That's sort of this signpost that take that thing and flip it, flip it on its head. That's the person you could be. 
that's the heal the healing you can you can achieve and it's it's almost like we have hints we have hints our struggle has holds hints to our healing does that make sense for everyone yeah okay Okay, and, and here we're going to see a source for this, for this idea that the, the, the way something appears in its external form or the, you know, the way the chaos or the trauma looks, it holds within it all the ingredients for the healing. So let's go back to our source sheet for a minute. Um, and Okay, so we're looking at source number four. This is a quote from Sefer Yitzira. And it's, I'm, I pulled out the words from a bigger context. Um, the quote is, sorry, there's no vowels on this one. Na'utz t'chilatan b'sofan, v'sofan b'tchilatan. Which literally means their beginning is wedged in their end and their end is wedged in their beginning. So the idea that the beginning and the end are, are intertwined, they're, they're, they're wedged in each other. The beginning and the end of something are not, uh, it's not like a process of events. They're actually intertwined within each other. So wh what is the context for this quote? This quote is in Sefer Yetzirah, where actually it's made in reference to the spirot, to God's attributes, God's divine attributes. We say that God has all these midot, right? He has chesed and gvura and right, all the eser spirot, you, you've learned about them. And what the, the quote is saying is, do not think that all these different divine attributes imply that there are different entities for God, that he is, is you know, this plurality or something. No, this quote is saying all these spirot, they are bound up in the oneness of God. They're intertwined, they're wedged in the beginning. If you would say the beginning is God in his essence, God in his source, all these divine attributes, you can roll them back up. They exist in the oneness. They're not separate entities. It's just the unraveling of the essence. But it, there's no plurality. It's, it's one whole, whole unit. And this idea is, is true in Judaism, I mean, throughout. We say, um, we say like about Shabbat, right? We say that Shabbat was the intention for which the world was created. That God, the final act, was in God's initial thought. When God was about to create the world, he said, what's my ideal pleasure to be one with creation? I'm going to make a whole world. I'm going to have six days of creation just so that I can achieve my initial thought, which is Shabbat, to be one with you. So in Judaism, the, the end, the final product is wedged in the beginning and the beginning is wedged in the end. They're like, they're intertwined. And, and when we apply this to what we're saying now, all the details of your struggle they're not separate to the healing. They're not just clues to the healing. They're actually bound up in the ideal healing state that you're headed towards. And you don't want to flee these details. You don't want to run away from them because if you run away from them, you won't be able to get to your totally healed picture. And you don't even want to throw away one detail. You know, I know um, I've spoken to, you know, we, we all have our process of teshuva and some of us call ourselves a bal teshuva, chazeret teshuva. Um, whether, you know, you use the label or not, we're all in a process of teshuva. And I've spoken to people before who have said, you know, they regret certain things that they've had in their lives or experienced or places they've been or, or things they've done or relationships, whatever it is. And one thing that is true in Judaism is that there is nothing in your past, in your struggle, in your process that was random. So if you had it in your suitcase, 
there's something you can do with it. It's an ingredient you can use in your redemption. It's a re an ingredient you can use to heal, to heal the world, to inspire the world, to elevate the world. And if we just, you know, let's, you know, take the, ser the servant, let's say Jewish people, they were slaves. What was their exile? They felt they had to be servants. They had to be servants. They had no choices, right? They were victims. They had to be a servant. Their redemption is they get to choose to be a servant. So it's literally their exile flipped 180 degrees. They're still servants, but now they're servants of God. Now they're using free choice. Now they can transcend nature. Now they're not victims. Now they're empowered. Service is like this phenomenal thing suddenly. So, you know, and if you want to make it personal for a minute or just choose something you struggle with, you know, say there's like the concept of working hard for something, right? I have to work really hard to achieve a certain thing. So I can sit in my exiled state and feel like I have to work hard, right? I have to work hard. I don't know. Let's say I want to play a piece of music. I have to work really hard to play the piece of music. And if I approach my practice sessions, like I have to work hard, I'm going to feel like I'm in exile every time I sit down at the piano. But if I flip it and I heal it and I say, I choose to work hard. I choose to sit with every note and make it a prayer. I choose to sit in every practice session and make it a meditation. I choose to sit in every music lesson and make it a divine experience. I've just taken the concept of working hard and I've lifted it up. I've given it wings. Suddenly I want to sit and work hard. Suddenly working hard is not victimhood, it's choice and it's beautiful and it's divine and it's artistic and it's creative and it's empowering. So the thing you're struggling with is the thing that can become your greatest medicine or it already is your greatest medicine. You just don't realize it because it's upside down. I saw a hand up, Sylvie. Someone had a hand up. Oh, nobody. Okay. Okay. So I think that as we are still in, like we said, we're in the last throes of this exile, you know, maybe this is what the Rebbe meant. The Rebbe on, on several occasions said this statement of open your eyes, open your eyes. Mashiach is here. And I think, you know, we, we heard it and we didn't understand what it meant. Open your eyes. Mashiach is here. Like I open my eyes and I see death and sickness. You know, what does it mean? But open your eyes. He was saying something very deep. He was saying, take the exile and make it conscious. Be conscious about it. Be mindful about it. Open your eyes, meaning choose to see things for their highest form. Choose to take that light and give it its ideal shape. And then you will see that Mashiach is here, meaning you create Mashiach. When you lean in to the light and you are willing to lean into the unknown, you, you, you basically tell God, I'm leaning in. And he says, I'll make order from the chaos. Don't worry. You're here. You're leaning in. You're present. You're ready. You're, you're not running away. You're trying to give shape to everything. I'm going to help you. I'm going to, I'm going to hold you. I'm going to surround you. I'm going to do this with you. And so in a sense, you know, we say when Mashiach comes, a world of redemption, we say it's going to be a natural world. It's not going to be some super, we're going to still be all of us with our, you know, who we are, our characters, our personality traits, the things we like. We're, it's going to be a natural world. I think as kids, we felt like Mashiach seemed scary. Like, I don't want it to change. Oh my God, I just have this vision of myself. When we were kids, we used to travel overseas a lot. A lot. I mean, for me, it felt like a lot. It was probably every few years or something. Um, but I remember any time we were right before a trip to New York, 
I had this practice that I would do until today. I'm just realizing, I think I feel guilty about it. I was little. I would, I would go to the back room of the house and I had a little prayer session with God and I would say, Hashem, I really want Mashiach to come, but could he please not come before the trip? Because I really want to go to America. <laughs> and it was like, I understood the Mashiach was a good thing, but I was nervous that it would take away some of my fun or some of my pleasure or some of my, I don't know. I was like, the world's going to change. I want to be able to go have fun and go to America. Like I, I didn't fully grasp that what Mashiach was and what we understand as adults, hopefully. And today is that redemption is the world exactly as it is with all the things you love and all the people you love. And, and, and we're still going to be who we are, but it's going to be the world turned conscious. It's going to be all the things that seem dark and unexplainable and chaotic they're going to have order and they're going to have meaning and they're going to have purpose and they're going to have light. And it's like, whatever you like about this world, it's going to be, you know, exponentially better in a redeemed world. So let's just go to the final source on our page. Um, this is a prophecy from Yeshaya, Isaiah again. And this really will just wrap up everything we've said until now. He, he's saying prophecy for the future. And he says, this is uh, quote number five on your source sheet, the Amarta Bayom Hahu. You will say on that day, in, in the final redemption, when we're totally healed, you will say, Otcha Hashem, I thank you, Hashem, ki anafta bi, that you revealed your fury to me. Yashov apcha utenachameni. Your fury has been withdrawn and you comfort me. So, this is a prayer that is, is not possible to really say until, until the final redemption, because what are we really saying in, in, this, in, this, in this prayer that we will say, this prayer of thanks? First of all, let's just translate the word fury. Fury sounds like a bad word. Um, I went through the Torah commentators on the word fury, and the Malbim, who was, uh, he was a Torah commentator in the 1800s, and he was also known as a master of Hebrew grammar. He says the word anafta, anaf, is uh, a show of, um, like, fury is like an external, he, we're translating it as fury, but the word anafta is God, you displayed, you had an external display of, like, furious energy, of, of drama. Like, it looked like you were angry, but he says there's a difference between really being angry inside, like really being angry, or just displaying this fury, displaying this noise, making noise, knocking on the door, you know, making a dramatic, you know, statement. And what we say is that there are times in our lives where God reveals his fury, so to speak. He, he, he makes a dramatic move. He makes a dramatic statement. The world looks chaotic. It feels like, it feels painful. It feels overwhelming. It feels like he's angry. And the Malbim says, it's not anger in the heart. God's not angry. He, he has to wake us up. He has to do something that will make you look, that will make you listen. He has to knock on that door because we fell asleep. And so, and Rashi actually says, what are we, what are we going to thank God for? What does it mean you revealed your fury to me? That you exiled me. Exile is, is an external display of like dramatic energy, of, of light without form, of chaotic, you know, chaotic light. And we're going to say when Mashiach comes, thank you, Hashem. We're going to thank him that he gave us this chaos. Why? Because why are we going to be able to say thank you for it? Because we're going to see how much we needed it. That we needed every single ingredient 
in that exile. We needed every single moment in that long desert journey. We needed every single leaning in. We needed every single element of that in order to become the healed people that we are meant to become. And what, what the, the, the pasuk ends, Hashem ki Yashov Your fury has been withdrawn and you comfort me. And what's beautiful is Yashov Abcha, you know, it's like the word Teshuvah, Yashov, like to return. What we're really saying is the fury was just like an external display and then it goes right back to where it's, meaning it's going right back into the essence. God is not angry with us. He just had to wake us up. So he walked in and made a loud statement. He had to sort of come out with this smoke so we would notice and wake up and say, oh, Hashem, you're speaking to me. You're trying to help me. You're trying to heal me. But in the times of redemption, all that fury dissipates. We don't, see, we don't need the noise anymore because we'll be totally healed and we're not going to need to be reminded of anything. We're not going to need to be woken up. We'll be awakened. We will never have the fear that we might go back to Egypt because we'll be so worked on, we'll be so deeply healed that Egypt will not even be an option, will not even be a notion. It will never hang over us again. So this is the prayer that we are going to say. And I mean, I pray that we can say it even now. I mean, I'd love to hear from you, but I think even now, perhaps each of us can find something in our lives that was painful. We thought it was the end of the world. And we can already say, thank you, Hashem. Thank you that you gave that to me. It made me the person I needed to be. Had you not given it to me, I, I mean, like, it's, it's crazy to be grateful for, for pain almost. But it's like, when we're that far from Egypt, when we're that healed, we are able to say thank you. And the thanks that we'll give as a people is obviously going to be incredibly deep. Until that time, we obviously don't ask for a moment more in this exile. But as long as God is keeping us in some form of quarantine and some uh, attempt to make us lean in, just remember, as you lean into this uncertainty, as you lean into this chaos, what you're really doing is ultimately leaning into Hashem, who's holding you. You're leaning into a light. You're not leaning into darkness. You're leaning into light, and Hashem is going to order that light. He's going to hold us and, and bring us to the Pesach Seder, which is an ordered leaning in and a royal leaning in. Questions? <laughs> Comments, questions, anyone? Amen. Oh, thank you. Amen. Amen. Yes. Thank you so much for teaching that. That was like really deep and like did a lot for me. Like, I think that we can all shift our perception with what you just taught us. Amen. Thank you, Molly. Like what you met. said Thank you. already healed us. Like, your words were already healing as just, like, as they were, as they came out. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Molly, have I met you? No, I'm oh, actually. Oh, I was like, wait, maybe Hannah. I met you. Okay. Yeah, I know Hannah Fagan, so she okay. heard it. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, Eva. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. It's such a gift. If you want to just hang on, we hang out. We can just sit and chat right now. Nobody's kicking us out. <laughs> 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 <laughs>